Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Today is Charlie White's birthday. So Charlie, how could we not be doing early modern today on your birthday? Oh, it's all I asked for for my birthday. So thank you. It's wonderful. Yes, it is. So who's here? Who's here? <laughs> well, we've got Stephanie Kosak today. She is an Associate Professor of History at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina across the pond. Her work has explored how the expanding sphere of commercial print, both visual and textual, impacted royalism and the representation of the monarchy in England between the mid-17th, greatest century known to man, and mid-18th. Her new research explores the history of loss, grief, gender, and material culture in England in the long 18th century. And this is all so fascinating. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, how are you guys? I have to, guys, did we get, did we find Stephanie via Carolyn? It sounds like we might have done. I'm, I'm sure that you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yay for Carolyn, who has been fixing us up with all kinds of amazing historians in the amazing Carolinas the last few weeks. Uh, she's basically our history hack pimp. Uh, she's a, a perfect perfect role for it. She's she's amazing. She knows everybody, I think. She's really plugged into these networks. Yes, and very convincing as well. Like I don't think if, if she wants you to do it, there's not really a nah. <laughs> Somehow you'll end up agreeing and you won't know how it happened. Uh, but this is going to be brilliant. And it, Charlie, go on, you can start. It's your birthday. Oh, this is, this is just so good. Go, Charlie. It's your birthday. <laughs> um, Stephanie, your book opens up in what feels like a really odd place to start a discussion about reverence towards the monarch, because you start by discussing the execution of Charles I. What was the reason behind that particular choice? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, and I kind of address this in the book too. I, I sort of say, this is a weird place to begin with the execution <laughs> of 
monarch. Um, but so one of the big questions my book um, is asking is um, how did sort of like attitudes toward rulers, how did relationships between subjects and sovereigns sort of change um, with the expansion of the print marketplace, especially graphic images in the 17th mm. century. And um, I could think of no more sort of iconic image of the Stuart monarchy than the frontispiece to the Icon Basilica, which is yeah. the Charles the first um, sort of book is like confession, right? Written um, just before and then published just around the, the regicide, um, which becomes this like best-selling sort of popular text of the 17th and 18th centuries um, and has this sort of fold-out frontispiece engraved by William Marshall, who's the sort of most prolific engraver in, in Carolyn, England. And so I started this project like a million years ago. So I started it, I think it was in 2008 when I was in graduate school, or maybe it was 2007. And that was the sort of Obama election year. I don't know if you guys remember. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, remember and it well. Yeah, yeah. And We're both election it. junkies. We would have, we both set up all night. Yeah, yeah, I, same. Yeah, we, we, we all, especially in Indiana, we were just so excited. Um, but so that iconic, you know, 2007, 2008 Hope poster, I don't know if you remember it, that poster, yes. of Obama, that was, yeah, that was really, because I, I was just really fascinated by how that poster became this really kind of dominant image that was then like recycled and parodied and satirized. And I think that's the thing that really got me thinking about the Icon Basilica and the sort of image of monarchy it was presenting and how that text, again, sort of creates this image of Charles I that then becomes sort of recycled and popularized and published in all of these different sort of cheaper editions across the period and then responded to and satirized and sort of torn apart by Milton and iconoclasties. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was really the reason I started with that moment just because even as the Stuart sort of regime is collapsing, you have um, really Charles I sort of becoming more popular than ever before through the medium of print itself. Um, and then and then that book I just found to be such a fascinating um, sort of portrayal of monarchy. And I don't know if you've, you've read it, but it has this sort of like, defense of these various things that Charles has done, right? And then each chapter ends with these sort of like prayers or meditations to God. So you get this like really intense portrayal of suffering kingship, I guess. Um, and just despite the fact that the book was sort of treated as if it were an image and, and a number of critics have sort of talked about this book as if, again, it was like trying to create this powerful image of monarchy that sort of overawed readers and overawed spectators and sort of converted them back to loyalism. Um, I just sort of found that the visual elements from the frontispiece through the kinds of visual analogies used in the text hadn't been really fully explored to sort of like focus on what they're actually doing, what kind of relationship are they creating with readers and how are they inviting readers to sort of interact with that text. So that was that was the logic of beginning with, with Charles. I just don't think you can um, find a like a, a more iconic representation of Stuart monarchy that's sort of so recycled across this period. So that image, obviously, because the podcast is a great place to um, to discuss. <laughs> to talk about images. visual images. Um, is is this the one where where the the king is is on his knees praying and there's kind of beams coming out of his eyes into mm -hmm. into heaven and beams from heaven coming to him and it's all very it's very very clear that he is being drawn as a martyr. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he's he's kneeling, the Bible's open before him, right? He's sort of like his crown has come off. He's like reaching for a crown of thorns, if I remember correctly. And I should have the image in front of me. I don't. Um, I have it with me. Now I found it. Um, he And then there's these like sort of emblematic elements in the background, right? There's like a rock that's being beaten by waves. There's, um what else? Oh, palm trees that are like growing despite weights holding them down. Uh, and so it was really unpacking that image image and trying to like I mean trying to find I think two things was one and I came across this at the Huntington Library and I don't know who was the creator of this file but somebody you know somewhere I think in the 18th century had collected a bunch of William Marshall frontispiece engravings that he's the engraver of the image um and so I happened to know when I was there on fellowship a number, number of years ago, I was looking through the box and I was like, oh, Marshall also engraved um, a few popular emblem books in the period, or at least the frontispieces for them. And so I was just trying to think about where he sort of came up with the imagery that he's using in this image. And that kind of led me to then start looking at some of the, these emblem books too and what they're doing. And so one of the big parts of this chapter or parts of this book is trying to think about, well, what do emblematics do when you incorporate them into the frontispiece? Like what kind of, like how are they asking readers to look at this book? And then I sort of look at the ways in which even visual imagery is used in these kind of, these ways that are really analogous to how um, visual imagery functions in emblem books as kind of a, um, a way to like represent abstract meaning, but root it in sort of divine truth of the natural world. And so I, I, I think the image sort of sets up this kind of like pedagogical intent for the book that somebody's to read this and it's not about like overwhelming them with this like sort of martyr king, but it's instead inviting them to that act of interpretation to sort of see the truth of that portrayal of Charles and um, kind of see through all of these sort of partisan hypocrisies that are circulating. So, so I don't know if that, I, it's hard to talk about this image when we're we're not able to all see it together. But we will make sure that yeah. your cartoon is based on this image. Um, oh, excellent! The episode goes out. So that makes my that makes my day. <laughs> so uh, we're looking. So this image is clearly fully invested in like the divine right of kings and stuff. But then, obviously, immediately after that, in your book comes the interregnum and there is no king. And so how do we see this progress, this idea of portraying monarchy in print for people and trying to trying to shape their perception of monarchy? Do we see evidence of a resistance to Cromwell through expressions of reverence for the concept of monarchy? Um, and how do they change again when Charlie's boy comes back and goes takes the throne in 1660? Yeah, I think, I mean... So this isn't some, the kind of circulation of royalist images through the interregnum. It's not something I look at super closely in the book um, outside of like thinking about how the Icon Basilica sort of circulates and is published. It becomes this runaway bestseller. But it's, they did. They did. Right. They, they, they And I think is it is it Laura Knoppers who's written about this? But like images of Charles were not suppressed in the way that we might imagine them to be, despite, mm. you know, sort of like more official images um, uh, in terms of like statues or something being taken down, but but in, like, you know, sort of medallions and lockets and like cheap metals stamped with his image and like, even, you know, books like the Icon Basilica with this frontispiece, they did, they circulated widely. And I, I think you're right, they helped sustain um, these sort of cultures of monarchism despite this sort of disruption to the monarchy. And they, they also help explain them to get to Charles II who, 
to me also is often much more of an interesting figure. I think they help explain that kind of groundswell of popular sort of outpourings of monarchism or royalism that you see at the restoration, right? Um, and just thinking through, uh, you know, like the way, what is it, like 120,000 people came out to see him progress into London on his birthday in 1660, Charles II or something. And immediately, you know, there's banners and tapestries being put up. There's, you know, shop signs are being replaced with his image um, to celebrate his return. But then you get this sort of outpouring of a kind of commemorative consumer culture too, things like coronation ceramics, et cetera. And so I think that, that, um, the possibilities of like sort of commercialized royalism really become sort of realized under under Charles II. And that also coincides then in the, what is it, the third quarter of the 17th century, you have this rapid expansion of the engraving marketplace in London too, which is something this, I mean, that's really one of the places this book began is just trying to sort of track, well, what does that do? What does the um, sort of increased ability to like represent um, especially portraits of rulers to a wider public because portraiture sort of dominates the, the marketplace of engravings through the 17th century. What does that do to understandings of royal authority in the period? And I think that really coincides with Charles II's reign in particular, that expansion of the engraving marketplace. Um, and even like really early in his reign, I mean, one of the most interesting things I had found was um, the engraver, is it Peter Stent in like the early 1660s is, you know, sort of like his catalog is published and it's all of these various images of the royal family and, and those who orchestrated the restoration too, that you can buy to kind of decorate your home with. But <laughs> one of the things he also sells is like small little pictures of the royal family. And he says in this engraving catalog, you know, they're specifically for use um, to decorate tobacco boxes. So there's this impulse then you know, not just to, to sort of acquire images of the royal family, images of Charles, but also to like incorporate them into personal possessions that you're then going to kind of carry around with you in public as, you know, a testament for loyalty. Um, so, yeah, I'm super interested in that. I, I love this. It's one of the things I love about this period so much, Stephanie, is when we talk about the early modern period, it feels like the restoration years are the first time that we can actually recognize very, very well the world that we live in with mm -hmm. celebrity culture. And uh, you know, Peeps writes about getting a getting a lovely print of, of the Countess of Castlemaine for his house because he thinks she's lovely and he wants to look at her. And um, multiple copies of that print too, right? I oh, think oh yeah. I write about this in another short article that I that I wrote on um like Frederick and like Royal Scandal, but I, I think it's like he gets multiple copies, but he actually goes to the studio to see the picture on the day it's finished. And then like yes. the day the engraving is published four years later, that's the day he's picking up. It's like, yes, this is the one I wanted. And of course he writes about it all, all so beautifully, which, um, which gives us a, a hint. But we also get at this time, as the, as the honeymoon period of the restoration mm -hmm. starts to wear off a little bit, we get uh, a certain amount of... Um, a lack of reverence yeah. towards those in power, satire and and things like that. I mean, the, the poor horse petition is is my favourite, though it's not a direct attack on the monarch. Let's talk about the popish plot sure. in 1678 because this is a real a real moment that we get to see the lack of reverence to the monarch imprint. Can you start off by, by just uh, potting the Popish plot for our, our listeners? 
Yeah. Well, so um, absolutely. And I think the, the interesting thing too about this particular moment for me is that all of those issues that kind of plagued, you know, Charles the first, like relation, problems of religion, relationship between monarchy and parliament, those are the issues that then kind of come to the fore for Charles the second, as you say, after 1678. Um, and so, yeah, the Polish plot, um, just, uh, you know, kind of made up, right, <laughs> to, um, to, like supposed design among Catholics in London to assassinate Charles II. It's unclear at first what they intend to do, actually assassinate him. <laughs> Another will become king. Uh, so the Duke of York, who we now know is Catholic um, because of the test act, right, that he in 1673 had to resign his position in the Navy. Um, and then you know, there's there's going to be as part of the plot, supposedly 20,000 armed Catholics will sort of rise up in London, start murdering Protestants. Um, there'll be an invasion from the French and the Irish too. Um, and and yeah, so it's this, you know, sort of groundswell of anti-Catholicism sort of produces these intense anxieties. Um, but the plot itself, and this is the thing that I, I mean, it's not really about this in my book, but this is the thing I just find so interesting that it's really all the invention of Titus Oates and these three other plot informants. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Titus Oates is this kind of like weird sort of like Anglican grifter who's accused of, you know, buggery in the Navy at one point, who then in like the mid 1670s or is it like 76 converts to Catholicism. And then that's how he he's carrying sort of letters between these like international centers of Catholicism, both in London and, and then on the continent. And that's how he claims to learn that this conspiracy exists. Um, and so then he like heads back to London and in, I think it's August of 1678, he sort of tells the Privy Council and the King about it. Um, and you can tell even, I so I've read, I think it's Sir Robert Southwell, who's the clerk of the Privy Council. His notes um, are at the British Library. And you can just tell, I mean, they have to walk this really like fine balance between sort of showing that they're taking him seriously because there is such intense anti-Catholic sentiment but also like they clearly don't think this is real. Um, and so they're, they're, they're asking for proof from Oates. He sort of sends some fake letters to the Duke of York's confessor trying to trap him in a conspiracy. And so it, it's kind of going nowhere um, about the truth of this. And then what ends up happening is Titus Oates and this other sort of guy, Israel Tong, they sort of bring their accusations about the plot to um, the London magistrates or Edinburgh Godfrey, who writes them down and, you know, they publish them, but then they all, he ends up dead. Um, uh, what is it like a week or two later mm -hmm. and his body's found after it's been missing, he's been missing for a few days on Primrose Hill in London. So suddenly this looks to some people like an actual conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, and Oates is claiming that Sir Edmundbury Godfrey, right, was was killed to try to keep out, like keep knowledge of the plot from like escaping. So I think that's that's the most concise I can be because it's such a weird sort of like moment, right? Where this fear of conspiracy and plots and sham plots really becomes endemic across the later 1670s and 1680s as a consequence. Oh, and then the, the only other thing to mention, right? Is that, <laughs> I know, I just said I was done. In the, like, the oh, it's so exciting, it's so exciting. Yeah, well, because it then leads into, 
this, my students, when I teach the published plot, they just get so excited too. And I'm always hoping somebody will write an essay on like who actually killed Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey because it's so confusing, yeah. right? But anyway, um, this feeds into the campaign for exclusion, right? So this, like the, the actual, the, the belief that there's a plot that moves leaders in parliament who we now would call Whigs to try to exclude the future James II from the throne. And so that leads to further kind of political I mean, the, the modern equivalent of this, it, for anybody who, who's watching closely enough, is, is the Clinton body count and how the death of, was it Vince Cape? Um, I can't remember his name. The, the death of their close advisor was like, aha, you can see that this is, this is now true. And then it, it, it escalates through the years through Pizzagate to QAnon. And it just, it, it was like this one thing flipped. Yeah a prejudice that was already there and it just kept growing and growing and getting more and more credence. And well, I think there's so much to that comparison. That's true too. Um, so I think in this, this book, I mean, it's about early modern, like English political culture, but it has these weird resonances with, mm. you know, like 21st century American politics. So I kind of began in this 2008 place. Um, and when I was writing this chapter, it was just around the time of the 2016 election. <laughs> and <laughs> that, suddenly we have, a, and you can see it now, right? It's continuing um, these like, like accusations of fake or false news, like concerns about political conspiracy and like secret forms of government that are undermining democracy. Um, and I think the really interesting parallel for me when I was writing about the um, Popish plots, um, it was just the, that that sort of fear that there, wa there were these sort of secret plots out there was really connected to media change for me. Um, and so I was thinking about not just the expansion of the press, right, in 1679 when, when licensing temporary, temporarily lapses. So suddenly you get this outpouring of partisan news. And so like, you know, sort of events are then looked at from these, you know, two different vantage points that leads to these fears about conspiracy. But the other thing that I really think is so important was the invention of the penny post in 1680. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, because what, what ends up, so the penny post, um, unlike the general post, uh, it, it is very fast. It delivers letters within London, you know, within the day, potentially, depending on what time you drop your letter off. But you pay, when you drop the letter off, you pay your pennies. So it means that whoever is like the receiver of your letter is not paying for it, as traditionally is the case with the general post. So what it does is like, democ so it's cheaper, it democratizes communication, but it also allows anonymous forms of like communication too. So for instance, you can target any political like leader, individual writer with a penny post letter anonymously, and they're not going to know who's sending it to you. And so that, like, that fear of anonymous news also turns into a fear that, well, if I can target somebody, I could be targeted too. And you get this kind of pervasive trope in these different um, trials across the period related to the published plots of like, there are these sham conspiracies being invented and folks are using the penny post to implant say treasonous letters on like a true Protestant subject who's then going to get, you know, um, like uh, arrested and, and, you know, convicted of treason or something against the king as part of this other sort of Catholic plot too. So that fear of, I don't know, the, the fears of anonymous circulation, the ways in which like those kind of standards of like 
trust and authenticity and credibility really become open to, to questioning. I, I think there's some really interesting parallels to now. Yeah. How do we get to playing cards? Yeah. So one of the things that I was really fascinated with was the invention of this sort of new ephemeral topical genre of engraved playing cards as part of this um, use of visual images to intervene in politics during this period of the popish plot. Um, and so the first pack of these cards is, I think it's in 1679, it's, it's published and it's engraved by Francis Barlow. And pretty quickly, four different packs come out that same winter. Um, and I think the use that, so these, these cards, what they do is they depict all of the different events in this popish plot. Um, they're not, and each card is engraved with an image, you know, for instance, like one image shows, I believe it's like Titus Oates, you know, when he's still a Catholic, like carrying letters between different centers of Catholic conspiracy, or you have an image of, you know, the assassin who's supposed to have shot uh, Charles II when he was walking in St. James Park, like that's, that's another image on these cards. Um, but they're really they're sort of difficult to work out what people are doing with them because um you know they're they're the sort of events that lead or kind of comprise the popish plot aren't presented in any kind of chronological order um the only sort of like order the cards seem to have is that the four main plot informants are the king in each um suit in the, the pack and like which is traditionally the highest card right in any card game and so I was trying to figure out, you know, what, what do people do with these? What kinds of political messages are they taking away from these cards? Um, and so I, I was thinking about them too um, in, the relation, in relation to like new kinds of card games and new ideas about gaming in the 1670s mm. as well, where gaming is kind of moving from something that is being sort of morally criticized because it involves like, you know, the drawing of lots, right? Cards and dice, which then according to ideas of providence, God is kind of getting involved in these two things. And so that's, that's bad. <laughs> um, and it moves from that to this, like, you know, sort of the emphasis on, you know, skill and probabilistic logic and rationality. And so that's happening at the same time too. Um, and so, yeah, it was really difficult to work out, but what I think these cards are doing are engaging players or audiences who are looking at them in that act of narrating conspiracy. So they kind of each depict these discrete events in this history of you know, Catholic plotting in England. And if they're read in the correct way, sort of how one card relates to the other, they add up to this kind of teleological bigger history of Catholic designs against, you know, England and the Protestant monarchy and Protestant rights and liberties. And so I think what they're doing, they're kind of like um, didactic or they're asking audiences then to kind of learn how to narrate conspiracy. So they're sort of like cultivating skepticism. They're asking you to like look closely, think about how one card relates to the next. So they're drawing upon those like, um, that, you know, sort of um, rationality of logic, the same, same skills you would use in card play, but at the same time, they're, you know, adding up to this worldview where everything is, you know, governed by this broader teleology of conspiracy that really kind of govern, it seems to be similar to this, um, uh, like a kind of understanding of providence or something too, where everything kind of is always a sign of this much bigger system that you know, kind of lies just beneath, beneath the surface of politics. And so, yeah, that's, 
That's what I think they're doing, at least. I was really fascinated by these. Um, and then eventually, too, you know, other packs come out. You have more Tory-leaning packs that are published, you know, a couple of years later, for instance. Um, but they seem like this really novel way to kind of intervene in politics and to reach multiple um, sort of, you know, multiple audiences at different levels of the marketplace, too, because they're just so cheap and available. I mean, playing cards as a almost as a teaching aid is, mm-hmm. is a, a wonderful thing. I have a I have a reproduction set from 1676, which is mm-hmm. it's counties of of England, and you know it's maps, and it, it they're almost like top trumps, telling you you know how how big the area is and how many people live there, and it's it's suggested that they were for children. So I, mm-hmm. I like the idea of the kids playing playing cards and and perhaps learning something. Yeah, there there are some great sets at the Clark Library at UCLA. Um, one of the best ones is that Joseph Moxon set for I can't remember if he's the one who designs it or not, but they're um I don't think he is. I think I got that wrong. But they're a set for like how to carve various kinds of meats, even. Brilliant. So it's like here's how, how you carve a part of your locker. Um, but yeah, I and I, I think you're right. They are they are kind of pedag- pedag- pedagogical devices. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. smaller than a book keep it in your pocket nice and convenient I love this <laughs> well, and, and they really lend themselves to like group discussion too mm. right you know if you don't know how one card relates to the next you can sort of talk to your neighbor about it who's playing cards with you <laughs> and not just take all their money um so <laughs> is there a sense after after the, the sort of madness of the popish plot and and that late the late restoration era is there any sense that things calm down following the the glorious revolution in in 1689 when William III comes to the throne? Mm-hmm. Does he does he offer the the fact that we've now got this great Protestant king and mm-hmm. his lovely Protestant wife and presumably lots of lovely Protestant heirs to follow? Um, does that calm down the anti-Catholic? press and things that are happening? I mean, I think the short answer is no, <laughs> in, so many, in so many ways. Um, and I'm just thinking, I mean, I, I have I have a sort of way that I might think about this from my book a bit. Um, but I'm also thinking about Rachel Wheel's um, book, what is it called, A Plague of Informers, where she, she discusses <laughs> ways in which this sort of plot-driven politics and fears about sort of securing the revolution settlement really sort of drives the state in that decade after the revolution. Um, but so one of the one of the things I do talk about or consider in my book is I, I try to think about how in 1695 print licensing lapses um, and it becomes a permanent lapse to print licensing. So it ends pre-publication censorship within within England. Um, and that's really the thing that sets you know them apart from other major states in Europe. So, for instance, France, but that you can print news without having it previously approved by the authorities. And this doesn't mean that you know the government doesn't try to regulate the press in other ways. We know that they do in the 18th century through like taxes. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. 
We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but in 1696, there's an assassination attempt or, you know, a supposed assassination attempt uh, against William, where he's supposed to be shot by some, I think it's Jacobite colonels as he's like going to Richmond. Um, and this plot gets discovered. But what ends up, and, so, and this, this ends up leading to this kind of outpouring of loyalty and sort of like expressions of loyalty to William I. State, which is really significant because Mary has died too, was it in 1694? So this is, you know, William, there's a lot of criticism of him, but this assassination attempt and what it, what it kind of signifies ends up leading to this outpouring of, I think, um, sort of loyalist sentiment in favor of him. And one of the reasons is, um, it just, it happens, the assassination attempt in this, or news of it sort of happens in this moment where there's this much more expansive print culture too, mm-hmm. and print becomes part of the politics of the assassination attempt um, in this really interesting way, because supposedly um, Louis Fourteenth. And then also um, uh, James, well, the former, right, James the, the mm-hmm. second, so the Jacobite exile, that they supposedly, newspaper writers claim, were aware of the assassination attempt and had okayed it, which becomes this sort of like, oh gosh, how could, you know, this is just underhanded dealing that's, you know, not suiting of monarchs anywhere to, to uh, agree to the assassination of another sitting ruler. But then what happens is newspapers, as they're writing about the attempt, as they're then like writing about these expressions of sort of loyalty that occur in the wake of it. So, you know, people taking the association oath and subscribing to it, um, declarations of like loyalist addresses that are being published um, for William that are then reprinted in London newspapers. Um, what also ends up happening is newspapers say, well, this is how the story is being covered in the Paris Gazette. And they're claiming it's an entirely invented and fabricated attempt, that there was no assassination attempt, that this is just the government trying to secure this outpouring of loyalty for William. So what ends up happening then is like newspaper print and the freedom of the press in England actually becomes part of the debate in the wake of the assassination attempt, if that makes sense. So it seems to give like, like writers are saying, like France is using print to enslave its subjects and support absolutism. But here our expressions of loyalty are authentic. And so (laughs) even though, you know, like loyalist toasts and celebrations are always kind of manufactured by the local political elite, they're still, they have this kind of whiff of authenticity or kind of popular sort of um, uh, loyalism and affection for the monarchy because of the fact that the press is not regulated by the government in England. So I think, yeah, these these plot-driven politics do continue. There are still these fears about partisanship and sort of misrepresentation, um, but you also have print sort of working in this new way. And and I think print for me really becomes this sort of vehicle for the cultivation of of loyalist sentiment and for the, the sort of um, demonstration of that too, as you know, sort of loyalist addresses are being reprinted from, um, you know, sort of from outside of London within London newspapers. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Got to ask as well. So we're talking about reverence for monarchy. Uh, Charles yeah. II, um, let's just say that his behaviour doesn't lend itself towards reverence, does it? How big a role do scandals have to pay in the discussion about this during this period? Uh, because he is completely indiscreet. And I think you write about Frederick Prince of Wales's love life too, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel, so um, I'm definitely going to talk about Charles, but I hope somebody wants to work on Frederick and mistresses because <laughs> I think there's so much more work that could be done. Um, but but I think that that's such a great question about how scandal kind of factors into these portrayals of monarchy. And I think, you know, for Charles, that sort of merry monarch persona, you know, pursuing kind of libertine behaviors, and, and I think Kevin Sharp calls it a sort of politics of pleasure, I think in many ways was a response to the history of um, especially sexual sort of satires of the monarchy and politicians during the civil wars that are being printed. Um, And also, I think it's a reaction to the fact that one of the big criticisms of his father um, is that he's sort of ruled by his Catholic wife, right? That that Henrietta Maria is the one really calling the shots, and she's you know um, the sister of the French ruler, and so that that she she is somehow controlling those like sort of the, the strings of state or something. And so I think for Charles, um, if we see the way he's indulging, I mean, kind of an, almost an exhibition of sexuality or something. It, it is this sort of reaction to the fact, I think like the cat's out of the bag after after that, this is the history of civil wars and the, the ways in which like, yeah, um, critiques of, of sex scandals have become part of this larger political critique. Um, but also I think it's, it's this, um, I mean, he's sort of sending a signal, right? That he's not governed by his wife, that he's maintaining, I think an independence, a, a sort of, um, a, like a, an ability to act beyond just his governance by her. And I think that's, that's one of the interesting things for me. Yeah. When it comes back to that question of reverence, I, I think you're absolutely right. How do, how do you square those things? The kind of over-familiarity that comes with these depictions of Charles' relationship with um, women at court and women outside of court, how do you square that with, you know, expressions of um, deference and obedience? It's, it's a difficult thing to do, but to bring it back to, Frederick, the thing I was really compelled by or interested in, in terms of his relationship with relationships with women, um, is 
you know, so he has a, a pretty public mistress in the 1730s who I, I think doesn't get a lot of attention, Anne Vane, who is connected to a political family herself. Um, and he, he has a couple of kids with her. They both eventually die. And then he takes public leave of her in 1736, just before he marries Princess Augusta. Um, and I think he's using, just like kind of Charles used his relationship, Charles II, with women to kind of send a message. I think, I think Frederick's doing something really similar, despite, and I think there's, there's quite a lot of um, sort of leeway there or, folk, you know, people aren't super, um, although there is some criticism, it's not as pronounced because he's young, he's unmarried. You know, this is the kind of behavior aristocratic male youths indulge in, you know, drinking and, and um, relationships with women outside of marriage. Um, but I also think, again, he's sort of using it to send a message about his independence. In this case, I think it's his independence from his family. He's being sort of kept under the thumb of um, Charles II, I'm sorry, George II and, and Queen Carolyn. Um, you know, he's like, doesn't have all of his household income. He's upset about that. He he isn't put in charge of the Regency whenever George takes his long trips to Hanover. Um, and then at the same time, so he's kind of kept under the thumb. He's sort of denied this independence as a kind of political actor as the Prince of Wales. Um, at the same time, um, George II is sort of popularly, or at least at court, criticized for somehow being like under the control of his wife, of Queen Caroline. So that same sort of criticism. So I think Frederick's sort of, you know, kind of creating a name for himself. People are interested in what he's doing. Um, the scandals that are published about him, these sort of texts are not, they don't circulate super widely. They're actually fairly, you know, like sex always takes place off the page. They're not super pornographic or anything. Um, and they allow him to sort of cultivate, I think as part of his growing sort of persona, as part of his celebrity, that word he used before, um, almost a kind of, yeah, an independent persona outside of court, outside of his parents, um, and to attract sort of broader public attention as part of that. I, did I answer your question? I can't, I feel like I've just... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just standard for history, Heck. It's great. Yeah. We love, love it. a tangent. We love it. it. Like, seriously, artists has just designed a mug with rabbit <laughs> holes on it. So we end up down them in every episode, don't we, Charlie? We do. That's that's half the fun. I mean, you know, we're, we're moving out of out of my wheelhouse now mm. completely into into the Georgian times. But um, yeah, seeing seeing the the tax on on Charles is yeah, going going after his authority based mm. on the fact that he can't keep it in his trousers was just something that happened over and over again from the press and from within his court circle. But so long as he found it amusing, mm -hmm. he would never clamp down on it because he, he just thought it was funny he sent rochester to the tower a few times sent him away send him away come back send him away come back go and fight the dutch for a while rochester you've been naughty come back again mm -hmm. it, you know it's just how he operated and i think i think that's such a great compare because frederick is is doing like that the level of sort of explicitness is never there in these because i think frederick's kind of like trying to embody this sort of popular steward sort of ruler already like he's kind of looking back to charles as a model in a lot of ways i think he did and, that so interesting yeah i think so too i mean i like i said i think there's so much more work that can be done on frederick i know i know there's a couple of folks who've been working on him but just yeah his the kind of identity he's creating for himself through you know, sort of his public action. So the other thing he does that I, I just find super interesting is he finally gets married. He's, he's wanted to get married for a while. He finally gets married in 1736. 
to Princess Augusta. But after his younger sister has already gotten married, I mean, this is this is a kind of I, I think another example of those parental restrictions. But that marriage is so written about in the newspaper, and it's part of the the kind of persona that's being created through the press for the early Georgians that I don't think we've thought about a lot, like how daily newspapers, even though the coverage isn't, you know, as gossipy or maybe quite as extensive as we'll see in late 18th century newspapers under George III, it's still there. I mean, the people are interested, like, oh, Frederick's launched a new pleasure barge on the team, <laughs> write about it. Um, and then like when Augusta arrives, you know, he goes to Greenwich to, to greet her. And I think one of the newspapers is like, there's like, 10,000 people that gathered to see him doing so, you know, and then, and then, you know, when they finally do get back to, um, I think it's St. James on the eve of the wedding, it's either that evening before or the morning of, you know, they kind of pause in front of the windows so the crowds outside can stare at the two of them. And so they have this like ability to, I think, perform for the crowd. And I sort of see his relationship with his mistress is doing something similar, a kind of performance for the crowd for these folks who are just, because of print, more interested in like monarchs as and in the royal family as sort of people, as as individuals who live these sort of interesting lives that that folks want to know about. Are there images shared widely as well in in the in the press? Yeah, I, I think well, so there, the images are at. So th- this is a great question. You know, throughout at, at various moments when there are you know sort of like royal celebrations of some kind, um, coronations, processions, birthdays, that's when, or when certain individuals are in the news, that's where you'll see, yeah, more images being advertised and coming out across this period. And the kinds of things that are being produced, so for, I think it's George II's um, coronation, um, you know, folks in newspapers are selling um, you know, an image of the procession, the coronation procession, actually printed on silk scarves that you can then there while you're sort of <laughs> renting out a seat to watch them in the city. Um, so yeah, their images are, are becoming, I, I do think, more ubiquitous and, and cheaper, more available too. Yeah. And all, also the other side of this is, is that, you know, there are changes in technologies of engraving in the later part of the 17th century. So one of the new techniques is mezzotint engraving. Yes, um, thanks Prince Rupert for that yeah yeah oh i'm so excited somebody somebody knows about the origin story (laughs) rupert is the one who sort of supposedly like brings it back and demonstrates the technique for the royal society um but yeah so mezzotint the the good thing about it because you're kind of working from dark to light so you sort of rub out the areas of the plate that will print lighter and you're not sort of engraving with these like you know lines and cross hatches like you would be with line engraving um it's it's much quicker so it better reproduces the surface of a painting so you actually get you know a really kind of gorgeous surface that reproduces even what looked like the brush strokes of an original painting that's being copied but at the same time too you can produce a plate much more quickly i can't remember the exact time but it, it, it's it's much more quickly than line engraving which then allows you to better respond to consumer demand so if somebody wants a portrait of somebody or you know to go back to your example of peeps you know you're not going to be waiting <laughs> whatever <laughs> Four years for William Faithorne's engraving of, of <laughs> going to get it much, much more quickly as a consequence of changes in engraving technologies. Yeah. This is mad because I do George V and I've got mass press and he's just being paparazzi to death. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like so far out of my wheelhouse. It's mm-hmm. great. But I think, I think that's, but you've got, you've got the origins of that kind of interest, I think, going yeah. back 
to this earlier period. That's the thing that's so, so good because it is, I mean, we've, we've thought about, especially um, George the first and second is just not being very popular, not like folks, not kind of really being interested in them, you know, and then, and I think too, we kind of see this big break when it comes to cultures of loyalism and monarchy kind of across the revolution. And instead, I think what we're seeing here is this like much longer um, kind of flexibility of conservative political thought of monarchism kind of across the 17th into the 18th century. And that part of that flexibility comes from, you know, the expansion of the press, the expansion of the, you know, consumer political culture. Yeah. So association with royalty for mm-hmm. any any business, any producer, right, right from then until now um, is good for business, right? Um, and you get businesses competing to supply the king, the king in turn being perhaps encouraged to wear British. I'm thinking about all I can think now is is just Kate Middleton and championing British designers like Diana did before her, like before her, before her. Um, how does that association and wanting to be wanting to be loved and wanting to be um, championed by the monarch? How does that get squared with fascination for scandal? And just before you start, I have to laugh. That's your association. Mine is seeing <laughs> the Waitrose van come into Windsor Castle from the Royal Archive <laughs> on the side of it to deliver the Queen's shopping. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing well. She's got Waitrose coming. Definitely. She don't do Tesco's. <laughs> well, I think this is such, such a good question. And I mean, I, I don't... I don't know that I have a definitive answer for how, yes, scandal kind of gets squared with consumer culture and commercialization sort of, but I do, I mean, you do see just as you're describing, I think both of these examples, the Kate Middleton example and the Waitrose bag example, you see kind of precursors to that in the period that I'm looking at. And so a couple of things that come to mind are, um, you know, sort of surrounding the wedding is it in 1734 of, um, uh, Princess Anne and, and Prince William of, of Orange, you know, they, the, so there's an engraving produced sort of showing, you know, the court at the wedding. There are these long descriptions of the, you know, like these are the shoes folks are wearing. This is how they're wearing their hair, entirely English, of course. This is, the, <laughs> they're wearing silks that are, you know, um, sort of large floral silk patterns that we know from other folks' work are incredibly popular in the 1730s. And of course, they're all the product, you know, the product of, you know, the native London silk industry. So there, there's that same sense of, yeah, like buying English, buying British that's, that's already happening, especially because of that competition with France um, when it comes to something like silk or luxury production. Um, but then you also, I think, to like the waitress bag example, I have, I have some work on um, sort of folks who chose to operate under royal shop signs in London in the 18th century. And yeah, some of these folks who are like choosing to operate under, you know, the sign of the Prince of Wales or choosing to operate, you know, under the sign of Queen, um, Queen Carolyn or Queen Charlotte, that they are, they have an official position as, you know, providing something to, to the model, like a lace maker, et cetera, to mm-hmm. the royal family. So there, there is that sort of sense that they, they are distinguished because of it and that becomes part of their own sort of advertising. Um, but not always and not exclusive, like by no means is that, you know, always the case. Lots of folks just like to operate under 
um, shop signs to sort of specify their political loyalties even. Um, and I have this other sort of example I came across in the seven, early 1720s of these like a high church and a low church cheesemonger um, <laughs> the low, yeah, of, of all things. And the, the low church cheesemonger, he has set up a sign of George the first, I believe it is, you know, that's the sign he's operating under. And then one night his sign gets targeted and it gets destroyed. And it turns out it's, you know, related to the fact that he was involved in giving evidence against somebody else or somebody gave evidence against him in a trial um, and that it's this competition between these two cheesemongers and it's, it's a signification of his political viewpoints, like sort of supporting dissent and supporting the Georgians. Um, and so, yeah, even your, your choice to use these images, even in a commercial setting, can be can be politically meaningful. Um, but, yeah, how that squares with scandal, I think, is, is an interesting question that I haven't thought, thought as much about. God. That's, that is so interesting yeah, that you choose where you, you support with your money, don't you? It's like you, you pick your cheesemonger based on your political, um, you know, your, your political um, opinions. Well, I don't, I, I've never had a cheesemonger, so I don't know. if yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like us all stopping last week on Twitter with Charlotte Tilbury because she decided to tell us all that the way to a happy marriage was to never let your man see you without your makeup on and our instant response was I ain't ever buying her sodding makeup ever again she can do one Mm-hmm. And we, we won't we won't drink in Weatherspoons ever again either. Um, <laughs> but, but no, British people, we do have a cheesemonger, um, Stephanie. We all have one. We all uh, have one. <laughs> and we I all like, choose. It's really competitive as well. Like, <laughs> they're very you just can't get in with the fashionable cheesemonger. <laughs> so, actually charlie this next question uh yesterday we all, we went nuts at westminster abbey over those little peep shows they were little um optical illusion images mm. of queen victoria's coronation and you've mm. also looked at how images connected to royalty can be found in the home uh mm. what have you discovered in that area yeah i so i first of all i want to see these peep shows because i haven't seen them. <laughs> don't um, google I will them. get it get it out of the box but um yeah i will just <laughs> that's, that's yeah well, i'll edit this out travel to london again i feel like it's the pandemic has just interrupted all research oh that's incredible okay um let me let me know if you can so you, oh i can sort of yes i yes. actually can holding up to the camera yeah. where <laughs> oh that's incredible you're kind of it's an immersive experience of, yeah um, so it feels like you're looking down the whole abbey instead of just looking at a picture of the abbey well, and so- our listeners are now going i want to see the peep show yeah <laughs> please do not google victorian peep show just don't ah <laughs> uh, you would end up with some yeah um not safe for work search results um, <laughs> But but I actually so I think that's such a great parallel. So that the, the thing you've just shown, like it sort of you know you look inside the little viewfinder there, and you can sort yeah. of see the Victorian coronation sort of in three dimensions. And it's so hard to try to uncover how folks in you know late 17th and early 18th century England actually looked at images of kings and queens and the kind of things those images conveyed. It's it's so like the the kind of politics of the gaze is that surrounds that act of looking is such a difficult thing to uncover. Um, and so. In, in my book, I tried to draw on some of the kind of theoretical discussions of the gaze. So, you know, Louis Moran's work on absolutist visual culture and the way it's supposed to 
um, kind of subjugate the spectator. You know, you sort of observe the image of, you know, Louis XIV, the Hyacinth for God image, you know, almost as if you're looking at the actual king. You're made aware through that image, it sort of produces the king's absolute power and you're made aware of your status as his subject. And there are just so few discussions in England of what it's like to look at one of these sort of especially cheap images of the king or queen that sort of find their way you know, into your home and you put them in your dining room, for instance, which is the place evidently you're supposed to hang. Well, it's the plates. There's a British obsession with the commemorative plates. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that that begins in this period, you know, sort of various potters are producing, you know, ceramics with with images. I have a whole collection of ceramic mugs from George V's funeral. Oh, that's incredible. Sorry. Yeah, like matching, they're all pen pots and stuff. But yeah, we are obsessed with royal tat in this country. <laughs> well, I it, bought it, some yesterday. I am entirely guilty of it. Well, this is this is how I, when I talk about my project, when I used to share what I did with students, that's how I would always introduce it. Like, have you been to London? Have you been to one of these tourist areas? Have you walked into a souvenir shop? And like, I was like, I'm looking at the origins of that in the 17th century. But um, yeah, how, how folks actually look at these is such a hard thing to, to really gauge, especially since there are very few records of what they did, even when people were traveling like country houses to look at, you know, sort of art and sculpture in the 18th century, they might just write like, good, great, you know, they were writing, <laughs> not necessarily these long, lengthy engagements, but one of the um, passages that I feel like I get a lot of use out of in my book, it comes from this treatise on Japaning by George Stalker and John Parker, and it's published in, um, is it 1688? And Japaning is essentially an imitative art in which you sort of lacquer wooden furniture or other things with this sort of shiny surface and often will include sort of shonazari images when you're doing it. So the whole treatise is like, well, how do you make these? And it's like, who is this for? And they sort of say, we're publishing for the, you know, the gentry who are interested in, in what good Japan is. But one of the sections of that book actually deals with, well, what do you do with engravings in your home? How can you, can you display them? And they suggest in particular for mezzotint that you can gla- like color it and glaze it with a kind of lacquer and then place it on your wall. And they describe that process of like, what it what it's like to look at that lacquered picture of the king and they describe it as like here the prince and subject may and not irreverently meet face to face here i may approach my king without the introduction of a courtier and that idea <laughs> that like somebody's going to see that image of say charles the second or you know william the third and and actually imagine they have an audience with the real king in some way, which reminds me of the Victorian Keep show you brought up, that kind of immersive experience. And and I just so so one way of answering the question is just to think about, well, these um, you know, a reflection like that and how even something that was cheap and sort of ephemeral might have had this, you know, like major significance for an individual if if sort of hung within the home. Um, And then the other sort of part of that question is so many of these images, because they were inexpensive and because they were ubiquitous, you know, they're just not preserved. So going back to that Peter sent, you know, images on tobacco boxes, you're actually doing something with that image, you're glazing it on like a tobacco box you're going to carry around, which means that's going to get lost, it's going to get damaged, it's not going to end up in a museum. And so like a lot of these kinds of things, because they were inexpensive and quotidian, they're just not available. So it's just, it just 
so difficult. But one of the things I, I'm sort of arguing is that by incorporating the state into the, and the monarchy into these sort of domestic interiors, that's really the significant thing here. It's making the monarchy kind of part of the effective attachments and intimacies that are formed within the home. And that becomes a sort of site for the uh, cultivation of loyalty, for the cultivation of, you know, sort of loyalty imagined as an emotional bond with the ruler in some way, like imagine that language of affection and affect. Um, but yeah, I, I also love Royal Kitch. I've got a lot of it that I've got <laughs> whenever I'm in London on research. Stephanie, you could have taken this book up right to the modern day and, you know, Alex and, and I and our, our portraits in the house, you, you probably can't see, but over my shoulder in my hall there, there's a, a portrait of Charles II. Yeah, I'm having is everywhere in this house. Everywhere. We're having audiences with those long dead kings every day. Um, well, having worked for the civil service, you still walk past a portrait of the Queen every day on the way into your yeah. office. She, there's a portrait mm-hmm. in every office still. <laughs> there you go. But, but your book ends in... 1760 you you have you haven't gone through to to these these two um nerds today is, is there a greater degree of reverence in 1760 so, do you think? so i don't think there's a greater degree of reverence and so for me reverence is really defined when we look back at sort of discussions of it in like sermons you know sermons and political treatises it's really defined as the the kind of demonstration of deference in some way it's a kind of outward looking thing that you perform and show reverence um, and it's also not just, it's not servility, right? That's the kind of difference between, um, you know, having kind of constitutionalist monarch or, and, and a kind of absolute, right? This, this is voluntary, yeah. the kind of reverence mm-hmm. that you show. Um, and so I think like that idea that that's what reverence is kind of remains consistent. But for me, the change I see is that increasingly across this period, there's that greater emphasis on deeper levels of feeling in some way, that it's not just about that outward performance, but it's the sort of feeling of some kind of emotional bond. And there's that you know, increased understanding of loyalty through that language of emotion and affection demonstrated for um, the ruler in some way or sort of experienced or felt for them. So I think for me, that's, that's the change. And you know, we might see it as a kind of domestication of monarchy in some way. Like this is, a, you know, I think of it as a kind of double-edged sword or something where you have on one side you know, images and print are making the royal family, even while they're sort of inaccessible to most, they're becoming more familiar. And that familiarity might breed, you know, criticism or contempt. But at the same time, I think it breeds the possibility of a kind of intimate association with them that you can imagine yourself kind of having this sort of personal bond with the individual of the ruler. And so I think that's that's the change I see. The, the increasing sort of shift toward loyalty understood through the language of affection and emotion in particular, and kind of cultivated through the expansion of print, both visual and textual. Um, yeah. And so, so I think, again, it's, this is about the, the flexibility of conservative political thought across the 18th century. I think that's the thing I sort of keep coming back to, that you have, again, that emphasis on obedience, but also this kind of material sort of proof of these emotional bonds that are being created through the images and objects that you, you know, have in the home and carry about, you know, on your person. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming and, and sharing that with us. It is, it's incredibly fascinating. And again, so much that we 
we see and still experience today. Um, this is just the foundations of it. So thank you for sharing them with us. Thank you for having me on. This was so great to revisit my book and have, have a nice chat about it with you too. I really enjoyed it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.